0: Why is the American perspective on ministry success inconsistent globally, and perhaps incongruent with Jesus' own approach to ministry? This week, we talked to Dave Gibbons about how he is changing the way leaders think about transformational leadership globally. It's all in episode 26 of the Church Leaders Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now, here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess.
0: Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 26 of the Church Leaders Podcast. This week, we talked to Dave Gibbons. Dave is a global leader who consults with ministry leaders all over the world in creativity, engaging culture, and innovation in leadership. He's worked in Southeast Asia, China, India, over in London, in Europe, um, and, and really is focusing on transforming marginalized communities through strategic leadership development and ideation ventures. Dave is an expert on how do we reach cultures in a way that makes sense for them. Uh, This is a powerful conversation for anybody who is uh, working cross-culturally in leadership and in ministry. Uh, So now, here's our conversation with Dave Gibbons. Well, Dave, welcome to the show. Dave, you have done uh, so many neat things. It seems like everything, um, as I read about all the things you're doing, it's like, man, how how does he have time for everything? But (laughs) as we get started, uh, I'd love to talk about New Song, uh, a unique multi-ethnic ministry. So tell us about how this ministry got started.
1: Yeah, it got started right after the the race riots. I was really motivated by that. Uh, it's I think in 1993-ish, and then also uh, when I saw the condition of a lot of the immigrant and minority minorities of America, they weren't really finding a home, especially the the second generation. They're kind of what the LA, L.A. Times at that time was calling the silent exodus, and so it it was it was that kind of need that generated me to start looking and at maybe the possibility of starting a, a, something fresh for this new wave of people that were coming to america and then when i was actually in southern cal speaking that was confirmed when i was in a hotel room and i you know i come from like the dallas seminary background so I, you know i'm not really like at that time was uh that charismatic at all but i felt god speaking to me i felt at that moment and he said uh Psalm 40. And I I heard it twice and opened up my Bible. And it said, I took your feet out of the muddy clay. I placed your feet on a rock. I've given you a new song. Many people fear and trust in my name. And I looked over outside the window. I was about, I don't know, 15 stories high. And I saw the Orange County, LA landscape. And I said, oh no. And I knew he was calling me to, to start another church.
0: Well, and so tell us a little bit about how, as New Song has grown, because I know it's a a ministry of multi-ethnic churches throughout Southeast Asia, China, India, um, Mm -hmm. even into Mexico and over in Europe. So tell us kind of about how how that vision grew.
1: Yeah, you know, the vision at that time that what we were told was that, you know, we're supposed to keep planting churches and we we couldn't grow it in one spot alone because you just run out of land. And plus it just becomes like this huge thing to keep under one roof. And in our major cities that we were planting churches in, it was just too expensive for property. So we just started launching like these multi-sites. But eventually the multi-sites turned into um, their own churches because it it got kind of ridiculous to us that we in Orange County were maybe trying to tell people in Crenshaw or in Bangkok uh, maybe what to do when they really had more expertise in local no- cultural knowledge and network. And then eventually, you know, what happened with our new song in the last, like, several years is we realized it's more about an operating system issue, that our operating system can be placed almost in any form, whether it's a business, an artist guild, or network, a neighborhood. Uh, It doesn't have to be just a typical institutional church
0: form. And and one of the things, you know, I think the more people work with churches internationally, like you said, we see that... Um, there's lessons to be learned. Like, I mean, there's different cultures, but what do you think are some of the things that you've learned personally as you've worked with kind of establishing international churches?
1: Uh, First of all, there's like a negative side to it. I think that, you know, I I learned that we often impose our Western model and the way we do things upon the locals. And they'll put up with it a lot of times because they're receiving some type of capital, I think, engagement. But, you know, I don't know if it's really a value. And I saw how that actually hurt Uh, A lot of the initiatives throughout the world, uh, because it showed that we weren't really sensitive, and the stereotypical American arrogance was coming off again to I think a lot of these countries, and and so what we learned was really that a parable like it was called Monkey and the Fish, is an old uh, Asian parable, and they they said this monkey came upon like this stream, he saw this fish struggling in a vortex of water, so he went to rescue it. So. He dove into the water and took the fish out of the water and took him to the dry land and put him on the ground and said, hey, you can rest here. And then he took off swinging through the trees like he did something uh, heroic. But then the fish died. Mm -hmm. And I I said, man, that's exactly how a lot of us do international work. So I, I think we learned what not to do. But then in terms of what we did learn that was significant was that the locals can lead us. It's very similar to, I think, how... When you think about the pioneering days of Lewis and Clark, you know, there's a lot of credit given to Lewis and Clark. But often the, the history books and documentaries don't mention the fact that they're actually led by American Indians uh, on their own trails. So uh, the locals will always, to me, know more than us. And you have to have that assumption. The second thing I think we learn uh, in, is the communal component. I think that Asia and other countries are really strong in, in the South America as well. And, and with that understanding of the communal component, I think what I saw highlighted was this idea of the power of one, that it's not necessarily about the masses that uh, we're supposed to focus on. In fact, when we do focus on masses, I think it diffuses the potency of a lot of our own ministries, because the reality is only like maybe 1%, if not less, can maybe lead something really huge. And so, um, for the majority of us, you know, we we can do significant work, but it may be with one or just a smaller community, and that's not bad. The impact actually may be greater than even a megachurch, because that one person could maybe impact the whole country. So, those are a couple of things we learned.
0: And I want to drill in on that a little bit more. Um, You know, we live at a time where there are massive churches, huge followings, and different uh, things like that. And I really like that idea of of looking kind of to more of the quality than the quantity. Can you kind of illustrate that a little bit more from kind of what you're seeing?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it's from a historical perspective for me. I think we were given a set of clothes that like, it's like Saul's armor. And a lot of us know it just doesn't fit, Uh, but it's what we've been told to do. So we just keep doing church planting, which again is good, but it's through a certain methodology. And so you have to have certain metrics to show your success to a denomination or group of people that you're successful, and usually it has to do with your numbers, your bottom line numbers of attendance. And I I don't know if that's really the best metrics all the time. It's a metric for sure to be looked upon. But what what I found is almost uh, that there's this other way that Jesus did it. And if you look at John chapter 4, I think it's a great prototype for us. If you think about how uh, Jesus went to reach that village that came running to him in John 4, you know, he had every tool available to him. He could use mass marketing with angels, you know, and this this power show that at night to say Jesus is going to do this big crusade. But it's interesting. Jesus' approach to seeing that whole village come to, to him was through one Samaritan woman, and uh, he he actually engaged her in meaningful conversation that was more Socratic. He asked questions, and then it had that uh, illumination side of it where he he was understanding her. So I tell people, a lot of people, a lot of men knew this woman physically, but Jesus was the first one that saw her soul. And that was a divine transaction that occurred. And in that tra- one transaction, she was so changed by his knowledge of her that she ran back to the village because she was the one with the keys to the village. And then all the village came running to her. And when I, when, so when I look at that, I feel, man, that's really good for me. And I think for a lot of us because again, we've been creating these models of just mass evangelism, which is great. I and mean, then God will use people that way. But I'm looking at how Jesus did it. And it seems like he did focus more upon the 12 and the three. And we're all still impacted by that today.
0: That's really good. So, as you are thinking about that, like if, mm-hmm. you, know, if you had a magic wand and could make one change to kind of the, the church in America, maybe especially like kind of the megachurch movement, um, what is the one thing that you would change?
1: Well, it's not that I wouldn't want to bag on my brothers and sisters doing megachurch. You know, I'm a part of one. Um, but I would say the one main thing, whether you're a mega or whether you're, a, to me, the majority church, which is like 100 or less in America or beyond in the world, I would say the key issue is look at your operating system. How do you really develop people? How do you develop leaders? When you look at like, a, say you have a pyramid of, at the top of core and then it goes down into bigger quantities, you go down to community of saints, and then you go to the curious, and the largest group is the crowd. I said, you know, how do you really develop those four arenas of people? You know, and what is, who is your church really called to? And I think if you look at even, if we're really honest, like our church plans, our multi-sites, a lot of them are started with, again, church people. So we're still reaching the community of saints. And then it's kind of, I think, predominantly a reshuffling the deck. And I wonder if some of these salvations are just people who are accepting Jesus again sometimes, to be honest. Uh, because I, I look in, at the culture and I said, our culture still hasn't shifted, even though we have some very large churches. And this is even true in Seoul, Korea, where you have eight out of the ten largest megachurches in the world. And uh, the young people are not going to church. In fact, there's a, a crisis, there's a mass exodus. And so I, I, you know, I feel like you know, what we have to do is really reexamine again, our operating system Are we and who are we targeting in that operating system, I would advocate that while we can still do services like we do in small groups and that type of thing in a church, what are you actually doing to customize the development of the, the top rung of the core? These are the ones who are all in. Uh, how, so how are you dealing with the business leaders and artists and people who are already in the public square? How are you teaching them to flourish outside the Sunday walls? And how are you actually freeing them from sometimes the shackles that we can put on a person uh, to just get involved in a lot of meetings throughout the week. And then on the secondary level, I think in our operating system, what are we really doing to reach the loss in the public square? Because realistically in our culture today, I think it's very difficult to invite someone into a Sunday program service if you're really trying to reach the public square. I know, in, in L.A., for example, theres I tell people you know, people don't go to a Laker game until like the third quarter because there's so many options in LA. And so why would they want to go to a program Sunday morning unless they feel guilty a little bit, or of course the Holy Spirit works in them. But I said, realistically, it's like someone maybe of a different faith that you don't believe in invite you to come to their program on a Sunday morning when you maybe want to sleep in or you have a ton of other things to do. I said, realistically, I'm not sure if we're really engaging the public square. So I think the operating system has to be about really trying to figure out how do we reach the public square where we're in it, and maybe it's more about an operating system to give to our people than just a simple creation of like an event experience program on a Sunday morning. And then secondarily, in the operating system, what are you doing to customize the development of your core so you're actually unleashing them from the sometimes the chains of a central location?
0: I like that. And one of the things that you often say is small is the new big. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of unpack that phrase for us a little bit?
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of times people get really confused. It's like when you see these church plants the smaller churches, they try to just create and become a full service church, right? And so you have these guys that are amazing, but they have maybe 50 people or 100 people and they're just working their rears off and men and women and they're, they're working really hard to create this full service option for people and, and it's like, Wow you can see it doesn't have the quality of the megachurch, but they're trying to compete with the megachurch. And to me, I don't know if that's the the game. I I think it's more about, again, if your metrics is really impacting the culture um, and loving people and equipping them, maybe, again, it's focusing on a few like Jesus did. But there has to be a willingness, I think, in that where maybe your primary funding is not going to come from the church institution itself. But it may actually come from even coaching or from you wearing another type of outfit in terms of your occupation.
0: Let's dig into your personal story a little bit. Uh, You you grew up kind of in a fundamentalist background. I I know you attended Bob Jones for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, How did that kind of shape and and then kind of reshape your picture or your idea of Christianity and the church?
1: Yeah, it was very formative. I think on the positive side, you know, I really appreciate their love for those who don't know Christ, of course. And I appreciate the discipline I learned. It was like a, they, people call it like a West Point of, the, of Christianity at that time because there was so much discipline and, and rules and you get demerits. It was all types of stuff. So I think that was really good for a kid like me who was like came out of chaos. So the structures were really good. Um, Also, I think just some of the Bible knowledge was positive. I think on the challenge side, uh, there was a limited view, I think, uh, for me, uh, especially when it came to maybe just the mosaic within those who know Jesus, that there was like an exclusivity that I'm not sure was something that is a part of Christ's heart. So I, I think that I had to work out of a little bit. And the exclusivity... Was specific in regard to it could be denominations, it could be partnerships with people that they thought you were supposed to be partnered with, and then also probably the racism. I think the prejudice. You know, because I specifically, I you know I wasn't able to date Caucasian uh, because they said I wasn't white, and so I actually was told I couldn't date at all. And so when I was interested in someone. Uh, we could see each other initially, but someone like had to sit in between us and then, and then eventually when they saw we were serious, they said we couldn't even see each other. So we just wrote notes to one another, but yeah, so that really impacted, I think my perspective. I, I, I think to see that there is racism in the church today and it's not just in America, but as I travel, there's these hidden things of these barriers. And I tell people to test sometimes of whether you may be racist or prejudiced is would you let your son or daughter marry someone in that race? And that kind of brings it home. Mm.
0: And as you find that, what do you think are the th- steps that churches should take to, um, to kind of address that problem?
1: Uh, I think, you know, first I think it's, it's just defining that reality. It's, it's admitting that, that it's there. It's, it's like it's, you know, whether you have it or it's maybe someone in your congregation, most likely it's in your environment. So I think it's just the omission of that and to assume that's probably there. And then secondarily, I think it's we actually have to model a lifestyle that it's not where we don't see color, because God made color, he created it. We actually have to affirm the color, but also learn how to embrace the other. I think it's fundamental to really what a lot of our church constitutions dictate at the very beginning of our constitutions or our strategy statements, is we say we're our vision is to love God and love our neighbor. And I say fundamentally, our, the neighbor actually is someone not like you. When Jesus told the Good Samaritan story, it was a half Jew, half Gentile loving the Jew. So that was a really horrific story to the Jewish audience that the Samaritan would be loving them. But Jesus told that story in a very Asian way to me. It's like he didn't give a direct answer. He gave a nuanced story that really said this is someone that you wouldn't like. Maybe someone... That's not, you wouldn't be comfortable with that maybe you would even hate. And so to me, that's the beauty of the gospel that, and so people, I think in the church need to see this piece of it, that this is not just like a PC thing to do, but it's actually the very commandment he gave us is love God. And then symbiotically, we need to love our neighbor, someone not like you. And in that pursuit, I believe we see more of who God is. If we don't pursue that, I feel like, man, we actually at a loss and then secondarily, I think it's one of the secret things that really the, that we don't capture, uh, a secret in the sense that we don't know it, even though God maybe explicitly told it to us. But it's one of those things that if we're really trying to impact the culture, this is the thing that really shows the, the transcendence and the beauty of God, who God is, is when we can love the other in our culture.
0: Mm-hmm. And that brings me to, you have the opportunity to work with so many pastors and ministry leaders around the world. What do you think are some of the key lessons that you know, North American pastors and ministry leaders should be learning from their brothers and sisters around the world?
1: Hmm. I'd say there's several things. Uh, one is um, humility. There's a humility and respect that's with other cultures. And it's based upon, like in Asia specifically, the shame. it's a, it's a shame-based type of culture. So it's, you're always trying to demonstrate respect and loyalty to other people. So I, th- I think there's a component that's missing there, the respect and loyalty. Um, the other thing, I think, is the communal components. You know, in America, you know, as our elderly age, and it's increasing with now our the boomer population in the U.S., it's frightening to me because of how we even view the elderly. Whereas in Asia and South America, there can be like this, there's a very high respect to the elderly, and they're honored as sages. And there's even sometimes a different language even within their own culture of how you would talk to an elderly person. It's with so much more respect. And I, I think it's horrible to me that in America that the vision is as we grow older, we become more alone and, uh, and that, that independence is like really a gated community where we don't even know our neighbors. Uh, that's sad to me. I think what we can learn from the world is how do we actually learn to live together, and maybe the reason why we're so stressed out and burned out is because we haven't taught people how to live in true community beyond just a formulation of a small group where you talk about the Bible and you eat together, but you really don't know and share each other's pain and victories.
0: I think that, and I think it's a really I mean, just, a, just such an important thing for leaders to learn. Let's talk about your. I think it's your new book, "Small Cloud Rising." In this book, you kind of tackle how creatives and you know, I guess the subtitle is how dream creatives, dreamers, poets, and misfits are awakening the ancient future church. Um, Very intriguing title. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you were trying to do with this book?
1: Yeah, you know what I saw was like it's crazy, man. Because I've been working at these different churches, and I created you know this whole multi-site type of deal, but. I had this like picture of what I was doing one day because I, I, I saw like my future, like the Christmas story where I'm going to have to go through like five building campaigns, raise about $100 million. And then I'd have this huge group of people, but then I, I would have to ask myself, were we really making an impact in the city? And I felt like, man, probably not because like, we already have like a large and we have megaturch all over Orange County, but I'm not sure if the culture is shifted. And so this vision of Small Cloud rising was, this small cloud coming, but it was the thing that was going to bring the big storm. And I said, what in the world's that? And then I had these series of questions. I felt like when I was in my time with God, you know, again, I felt, you know, him impressing on me several questions and the questions provoked small cloud rising, the book, the questions were, what would the church look like if it's not contained on a piece of land? And I had no idea. And then what, he, what God was talking about. And the second thing was just recently, like last year, he said, Dave, what if you don't have to pl- plant any more churches? What if the churches are already there? And I go, what are you talking about, Lord? I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like, it was cryptic to me. Um, but wh- what I think it was, was that there's businesses and there's old churches, there's new churches, but there's businesses, there's, there's networks that they're the hardware of society. What you need to focus on is the operating system. And so, man, I really dove into this the last 10 years as I was thinking about through these questions and going through my own processing of the American church. And what I saw, and this is the clarity to me of Small Cloud Rising, essentially what I do is provide the design language, uh, the operating system idea of, I think, what maybe God was going after when he was thinking about the church. Again, this is from my perspective. But... It was all based upon mostly the Genesis narratives and then John, a couple of John passages. So quickly, uh, Genesis 11 was what I saw was that we were building babbles and that given the natural uh, proclivities of humanity, we just go vertical and we put our brand in it and we say how big and bad we are. Right. And then so it's all about the vertical build. But what I saw was that God said, that's not what I intended for you. My intention for you was Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 is about freedom. He says, the whole earth is yours. Why are you guys getting staying contained in a building and locking people up in one box when the whole earth is theirs? You know, I've given them the promise of all the land. Uh, so let them be free. And then Genesis 12, I felt, was another design principle for us as a church was, was blessing. He said, I, I blessed you so you'll be a blessing to others. And blessing to me, when I looked at it, seemed to be deconstructed into four categories of when you see a person, you know a person, you affirm who they are, and then you give to them generously. And then John 5 and John 4 were important. Is like, well, who do I know or how do I know who to bless? Because again, our church planning idea is just to go after the masses. And so I was thinking, well, that's not the way Jesus did exactly. So he did the John 5 thing and said Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. So I said, man, that really requires them, the pastor and the leaders to spend time with God and to really seek his face. Like, who do I need to invest in and give my life for and die for? And then John 4 was the model of how Jesus did that. He engaged that Samaritan woman who then had access to the whole village, and they all came running to him.
0: I think that's it's exciting. I, I am excited to, to read it myself. Tell me about... Um, You know, a lot of leaders um, are always curious about, you know, your morning routine or different habits that kind of help you as a leader. So, are there things that you kind of do consistently um, that kind of strengthen the soul of your leadership?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, I do things consistently. Um, Number one, I usually wake up early and go to bed early because I need good rest. The first step to spirituality is just good sleep because we're all cranky and not spiritual when we're not resting. And so people will be surprised, even though I have like a lot of engagements, I usually look at my day as three seasons, morning, afternoon, evening. And so I have one season of the day even where I'm still. Uh, typically, there are exceptions, but majority of my time that way. The second thing I do is I read the Word and I listen, try to listen to God. And I do that not just sitting still. I'll do that where I'm like in a room, but I, I like doing it while I walk and then I kind of you know, I'm able to do two things at one time. I'm, I'm exercising, but then I'm listening to the word or I'm reading the word, uh, and then talking to God. Um, so I do that. Like I exercise and I, I read the word usually, you know, typically an hour to two hours a day. Um, so that I'm just fueling myself with wisdom, but also space and silence so that the din of my life kind of dies down. So I could hear the, the the still small voice of god the other thing i do is, is i eat healthy to be honest like almost every morning i got kind of a vitamix and i do my green juice smoothie and so I, I do that almost every day and so it i feel like it kicks my day off with health um and then i drink a lot of water just to the pure you know help clean out my system so those are disciplines I do on a regular basis, and then throughout the day, if I'm able, I try to take at least a 15 to 30 minute nap um, because that then gives me a spark to sustain through my evening hours. Oh, one more. Oh, maybe a couple more things that, in terms of this creativity, because maybe you're finding yourself at a lack, and if you're like don't have creative juices um, kind of stirring, what I recommend to people is an immersion into a culture that's different than you. And so, you know, if you can't travel, you can even do that locally, because every city usually has these enclaves or cultural malus or contexts where you can engage, whether it's through restaurant or through a barber shop or through shopping or just walking. And just start to talk to people, listen to people. And then that's a rhythm I do on a regular basis where I'm immersing myself both in different local culture as well as global culture. So locally I do that, you know, several times a month usually at least, almost every day now. Um, and then also on a global context, I do that about once every couple months where I'm traveling to either mostly right now South America or Asia.
0: Mm. I-, I love those. I love the, pra- the practicality of like getting out into another culture because I think it's something that um, we all would be blessed by, but we often don't think about taking the time that we have and and pushing ourselves because i think a lot of people would feel like man that's a way i would push myself mm-hmm. and and i also love i love your the way that you kind of brought us back to physical health you know there's probably a lot of people listening they're like oh green smoothies that sounds terrible <laughs> but but i do think that we live in a world where more and more um health is a fight it's a battle you can't just kind of go with the flow and your and your your health is going to take care of itself so i think that's something that leaders need to be proactive about so i'm glad you shared that Tell me, um, you know, if you were to go back and sit down with yourself as a, as a young leader, maybe in your first or second year of ministry, are there things that you would go back and, and kind of speak into your own life? Things that you would say, you know, watch out for this or, you know, do this, to, the sooner the better. Um, what's some of that advice that you might go back and give yourself?
1: Yeah, the advice I would give myself, I think, is don't be afraid to identify clearly and address your fears. And then I think spend time considering how you want to to embrace the fear and move on to courage. I think I I, I spent a little more time on it. I didn't know even how to articulate some of my fears. Like, for example, the fear of man and then how that worked out, I think, in how I did ministry, because a lot of it was probably Like I would do things based upon maybe what people would say or think versus like really dealing with that fear and moving forward in faith. Um, So I think that's one thing. I think I would say earlier on, uh, take the time to really listen to those who are in your hand. Because a lot of times, you know, um, you're looking at, at reaching out so much and trying to reach your community that already in your context of relationships, there are these jewels, like the Samaritan woman. Um, it's like the Rahab, it's like the, the fisherman. Uh, there's somebody within, probably within your reach that maybe you haven't seen, that's golden. And that it's not about, I wish I had this mentor, or I knew this leader. It's probably someone within your reach that may not be famous, but man, they're the exact person to mentor you where you are right now. And then to go deep with them, just hang out with them and learn from them um, versus just talk a lot, I would just ask a lot of questions and watch how they live.
0: I love that. That's great advice. Dave, thank you so much for uh, being with us as our guest today on the Church Learners Podcast. So much wisdom and uh, I love hearing about the things that you're doing to uh, reach the church globally and then also... Uh, just some really practical advice for for leaders. So thank you so much for being with us.
1: I love doing this, and I, you know, I pray for the pastors that they know they're so loved. And I, I pray that they, they feel fueled by the power of the Spirit, because I do believe that God's giving wisdom and visions and dreams and igniting hearts again to turn a lot of our friends and our family you know, back to Him. So I'm excited to be with you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thanks again to Dave Gibbons for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes, and consider sending this episode to someone you know who may be blessed by its message. Make sure to download the show notes for this episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. The show notes always include resources mentioned in the show and links to some of our guests' top content on churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next week.
1: You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.